Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And we're going to talk about a war today, sort of. It's a very, very short war. Uh, And even though that is how this thing is often described, it actually took a lot of history to get to that very brief conflict, which was the Anglo-Zanzibar War. And it's one of those things that, like, pops up sometimes. You'll see it on lists of, like, nutty history facts. And they just talk about that without any of the context, which I think is pretty important. Zanzibar is a relatively tiny place, but it is uh, very significant historically, largely because of its geographical position. And there were a lot of a lot of different countries that had an interest in it. So we are going to give some context to what was happening in Zanzibar in the centuries leading up to this moment in time known as the Anglo-Zanzibar War, so you can kind of understand what led to this conflict. This isn't going to be a completely comprehensive history of Zanzibar, but it will be an overview that touches on some of the most important aspects of its history to explain how it got to this one point, literally an hour of conflict with Great Britain. Zanzibar is an island that sits 22 miles or 35 kilometers east of Central Africa in the Indian Ocean. The island normally called Zanzibar is actually one of several islands that make up the Zanzibar archipelago, and it's the largest of those islands. It's actually named Ungudia in Swahili. The waterway that separates Zanzibar from Tanzania on the African continent is the Zanzibar Channel. And today, Zanzibar is actually part of Tanzania, although it does retain a semi-autonomous status. Yeah, it gets a little confusing when you're doing research because uh, Zanzibar is used to refer to that one island, the archipelago, sometimes even in a wider context because of its importance, where people will say that, but they're including territory that is also on the mainland. So just know that as we go. We'll try to mention that it's specifically the island as often as possible when that's germane. But Zanzibar was part of a robust trade network long before Europe realized the country even existed. Uh, There have been humans on Zanzibar since prehistoric times, and the first permanent settlement is estimated to have been established by Bantu peoples around 1000 CE. But for centuries before that, it was a stopping point for traders from both the African continent and from around Asia. In the late 15th century, Vasco da Gama visited Zanzibar, and this marks the moment that Europeans realized that the island had a lot of potential. Unsurprisingly, at the dawn of the 16th century, Portugal forcibly took control of Zanzibar. Portuguese captain Rui Lorenco Orvasco landed on the island, and his men commandeered the islander ships and killed a number of them. All of this was to try to terrorize the country and force their leader, the Mwini Muku, to submit to Portuguese rule and also pay a regular tribute for Portuguese protection. From there, the Portuguese were able to expand their power into continental Africa. And for the next 150 years, Zanzibar was colonized and ruled by Portugal. It's kind of interesting because a lot of histories of of Zanzibar kind of start with that Vasco da Gama moment when it kind of comes on the European radar. And in fact, it had its own complete situation going on long before that. I want to make that very clear. But there was conflict over Portuguese control. Visitors from Asia and Europe continued to stop by the island on their trading routes. And the lucrative potential of this stopover point 
that linked African trade to the Indian Ocean and beyond was completely obvious to them, particularly as more and more people were using it. The Omani Arabs, in particular, hoped to make a move that would gain them power over this very key access point. And the relationship between Arabic cultures and Zanzibar had been in place for centuries at that point. If you look at a map, it makes perfect sense that people from the Arabian Peninsula would have made their way south down the eastern coast of Africa to Zanzibar. In 1650, the Sultan of Oman formed an allegiance with Queen Moana Moema, the sitting Muinyi Muku. The Sultan sent his navy to Zanzibar, where they attacked the Portuguese settlement on the large island of Ungudia, capturing 400 settlers in the process. They also took out a smaller settlement on the nearby island in the Zanzibar archipelago, Pemba, burning it to the ground. The Portuguese attempted to install a ruler on Pemba who would be an ally as well as uh, one of the native peoples, but that ruler was drummed out by the Zanzibari people, and Portugal's foothold in the region continued to slide from that point until eventually all of its settlers were pushed out by the end of the 1600s. By this time, Zanzibar's position on the East African coast had made it really valuable to the trade interests of a lot of other countries, and the island itself was divided in terms of its loyalties. As the royal family had transferred the leadership of Zanzibar at the end of the 1600s, it had passed that leadership to a brother and a sister, King Bakari and Queen Fatuma, as a split rule, although it still was ultimately under Portuguese rule, even with this leadership split. The southern part of the island was ruled by Bakari and the northern half by Fatuma. Bakari was more aligned with the Omani and Fatuma had backed the Portuguese. In the last years of the conflict between Portugal and the Oman in the area, Fatima had sent aid to the Portuguese who were trapped on mainland Africa in what is called Fort Jesus, although you would think it would be Jesus, but apparently not, uh, which had been built at Mombasa to the north. And the Omani intercepted the supply ships that she sent, burnt them, and then attacked the queen's territory. That siege of Mombasa, also called the Siege of Fort Jesus, lasted for two and a half years. It started in spring of 1696, and by the time it was over in December of 1698, not only had the Omani taken control of Zanzibar, but Queen Fatuma had also been exiled and taken back to Oman, where she would live for another dozen years. Her son took her position as leader and was loyal to Oman. Coming up, we're going to talk about Zanzibar's history as a territory of Oman. But first, we are going to take a little sponsor break. One of the biggest developments that happened for Zanzibar is that under Omani rule, Zanzibar became frequently used as a stopover point for slave trade. Oman's date industry was growing, and there was a need for cheap labor to keep that industry growing and the plantations profitable, so slavery was their solution. Thousands of Africans were enslaved every year and sent to Oman to work, or in some cases were then exported from Oman to other countries. Over the course of the 1700s, Zanzibar's reputation as a marketplace for chattel slavery had spread. Ships from Europe started arriving on the island to try to make purchases of their own to help supply enslaved labor to places like the Dutch East Indies. To be clear, this is absolutely not the advent of Africans being captured, enslaved, and sold off, and it certainly was not the only place that it happened. But Zanzibar did become the site of the largest slave market in East Africa during this time. 
It's really difficult to estimate hard numbers on just how many people were enslaved in the area in the 18th century. Generally, most historians will say it is in the thousands, but beyond that, getting specific is strictly guesswork. It was ultimately through Oman that Great Britain became connected to Zanzibar. Sultan Ibn Ahmed had newly come to power in Oman, and he sought to fend off challengers both at home and along the eastern African coast. He signed a Treaty of Commerce and Navigation with the British. This uh, treaty is all a little bit convoluted in terms of who got what out of the deal, but this is the very quick and simplified version. Britain, at war at the time with Napoleon Bonaparte, knew that the French leader was traveling through Persia and Amman's capital city of Muscat en route to India and that they, Britain, really wanted to curtail that effort. And in establishing this treaty with Oman, it meant that the French could not just stroll through that territory. And it also meant that Oman's forces would help to protect British interests in India. Britain also got an awful lot of trade rights in the Persian Gulf and the surrounding routes in the deal. In exchange for all that, Great Britain would help Oman defeat a rival Arab clan that held Mombasa and would continue to support Oman's settlements and trade interests out of Zanzibar. That meant that Sultan Ibn Ahmed and his son, Sultan Said, could further expand the business that traveled through Zanzibar, and that included ivory and spice. Cloves, in particular, became a really popular export. And while all of this was playing out, Great Britain was also in the early stages of an anti-slavery movement forming, and that would inform Britain's relationship with Zanzibar. In 1772, the Somerset versus Stuart case was tried in England, and it was centered on the question of whether enslaved African James Somerset had been illegally imprisoned by Charles Stuart. There are a lot of details to that case that we may actually get into in a future episode because it is important, but the basics were that Somerset, who had been purchased by Stuart in Boston, had escaped from Stuart when he was taken to England. And Stuart then had Somerset captured, imprisoned, and sent to Jamaica to be sold. Yeah, we talked about some of these details in our Three Astonishing Bells episode and the part about Dido Elizabeth Bell, but like not a full-on treatment of it. Uh, The judge here was William Murray, 1st Earl of Mansfield, and he ruled that the laws regarding slavery in the colonies did not apply in England and that England had no laws that legalized slavery. So, Stuart had illegally imprisoned James Somerset. This was a landmark moment. It marked the debate over enslavement and Great Britain as being wide open. From there, that debate progressed, and as the anti-slavery movement became more and more established in Britain, it in turn impacted the country's relationships with other countries, including Oman and Zanzibar. As part of the Treaty of Commerce and Navigation that Britain and Oman had signed, there was a British consul in Muscat, the Oman seat of government. And in the early 1800s, the consul started putting pressure on Sultan Said regarding the Omani slave trade. And this led in 1822 to a treaty agreement that limited Oman's transport of enslaved people to certain countries only. Enslaved people can be shipped from Zanzibar to Oman, but not to the Mascarene Islands or to India, and they could not be sold to Christians. That seems like an improvement on paper, but it just meant that Sultan Said increased the slave trade between Zanzibar and Oman. It did not really put the brakes on chattel slavery in the region in any meaningful way. 
When the British Parliament passed the Slavery Abolition Act of 1833, it abolished slavery in most British colonies. That compelled the British consul to once again make the case to Sultan Said that Oman really needed to follow the abolitionist example to keep their relationship with Britain as frictionless as possible. During the 1830s, Oman made a new ally and signed the Treaty of Amity and Commerce with the United States. As in the initial treaty with Britain, the Sultan had asked for assistance from the U.S. in its military efforts in eastern Africa. In an exchange, the U.S. was able to establish trading centers on Zanzibar and on the African continent. This was also intended to get Britain to back off a little bit with their anti-slavery nagging. The Omani Sultan wanted Britain to be a little bit humbled by the U.S. entry into the dynamic. This new treaty worked out really well for Oman. Their forces were finally able to end the ongoing challenges to their rule in Mombasa and to give the country complete control of the area. As a consequence, Sultan Said changed his title to Sultan of Zanzibar and Oman. He also moved the capital of Oman to Zanzibar to ensure that he ruled from the most prosperous part of his kingdom. He also expanded the slave trade, and he made a case to Queen Victoria through an envoy that Oman's position, which conferred a level of stability to Eastern Africa, really, really required a slave trade. She responded by sending the sultan lavish gifts and a notice that Britain wished to end any slave trade to Oman, as well as other areas of the Arabian Peninsula. And that was not the end of the restrictions that Great Britain wanted. In the 1840s, Britain once again demanded that enslaved people no longer be exported from Zanzibar. They could still be taken from parts of Africa and moved to Zanzibar, but they could not go any further. Navy patrols of British ships monitored the waters around Zanzibar trying to enforce this new agreement, but their efforts were really too meager to stop Said from continuing the chattel slavery business. Other European countries also continued to participate in this business as well. And we're going to add some additional context to all of this conflict over slavery between Sultan Said and Britain. And we'll also get into the sultans that came after Said and how things played out under their rule. But first, we're going to take a quick sponsor break. When Sultan Said died, it set off a rivalry among his three sons, which destabilized the Omani Zanzibari Empire and ultimately led to the two being separated completely, with Said's son Majid becoming Sultan of Zanzibar. This decision was brokered by the British, and of course, breaking apart the Omani territory into two benefited them. When Majid died in 1870, his brother Bargash, who had twice tried to seize the throne and was exiled at one point because of it, became the sultan. Bargash initially tried to follow in his father's footsteps and expand the slave trade out of Zanzibar, but soon he was met with resistance from Britain. Britain blockaded Zanzibar and forced Bargash to sign a treaty in 1873 that ended the slave markets of Zanzibar. This treaty also enabled British commercial interests to expand on the island and the mainland. We should also point out that just as abolition in the United States did not magically end slavery with like the flip of a light switch, there were still enslaved people being moved through Eastern Africa after this treaty. It was just being done illegally. We also need to point out that throughout all of this Omani occupation and conflict and bickering with Britain, there was still a line of Zanzibari rulers. 
But the role of the Mwenyi Muku was relegated largely to management of minor and local issues. And the power of the position dwindled more and more as time went on. The royal line actually died out in the 1870s with no heir. We've talked about the scramble for Africa several times in this podcast. So as a recap, this is the period from 1881 until 1914 when European countries claimed and occupied most of Africa, ignoring the fact that all of those places already had peoples and cultures of their own without any input from those peoples and cultures. Zanzibar was caught up in this as well. Germany and France started claiming land in what Britain thought was rightly its piece of Africa. These three European nations decided among themselves which land should still be Sultan Bargash's and which each of them should take. At this point, Bargash had gained control over a significant amount of territory on the mainland. And most of that territory ended up parceled out among the three other countries, with island lands and a strip of the coast being what was uh, kept aside for Zanzibar and under Bargash's rule. This was all laid out in the Anglo-German Agreement of 1886, and Bargash, backed into a corner by these other countries, kind of had to agree to it. Two years later, Bargash died at the age of 51. He was succeeded by his brother, Khalifa ibn Said. Khalifa worked with Britain in order to further expand abolitionist laws in Zanzibar, although he died not long after all of this started. His brother, Ali ibn Said, was the next sultan, and he also signed a treaty with Britain that essentially shut down all slave movement through Zanzibar. As the scramble for Africa continued and Germany attempted to lay claim to Uganda, Britain, threatened, jumped in to negotiate a new treaty in 1890, known as the Treaty of Zanzibar. And this second agreement between the two European countries also involved concessions on the part of Zanzibar, namely that it would cede territory on the mainland to Germany and that it would become a protectorate of Great Britain. The Sultan of Zanzibar remained, but just as the Omani rule had minimized the power of Zanzibar's Mwini Maku, Britain reduced the Sultan's role to practically an honorific position. While slavery was significantly reduced at this point, it was not completely eradicated. The British put the blame for that squarely on the Sultan. He was perceived as being resistant and stubborn and unwilling to follow through on the agreements that he had signed. Part of this was because the British labor and tax laws that were in place made it impossible for the plantations that had been a large source of income for Zanzibar to continue unless they were illegally using enslaved labor. So this is definitely a case of two wrongs. Slavery is obviously wrong. But a big part of the British move to push the sultans to abolish slavery in Zanzibar over the decades had really been part of a vested interest in destabilizing the economy there so Britain could gain power. Britain did not offer a plan or aid to transition the economy's dependence on enslaved labor to a structure that could have survived without it. They were hoping it would kind of all fall apart and these plantations would fold so they could just snatch all that land up for Britain. When Ali ibn Said died in 1893, Britain made its move to try to install a sultan that they believed would be easier to influence. That was Hamad ibn Thuayan, and that was the son of the former Sultan of Oman from back when it was separate from Zanzibar. Despite an early challenge to this plan by Bargash's son, Khalid ibn Bargash, Hamad did become sultan, and things initially went well for Britain as they had hoped. 
Over time, though, Hamad grew less and less submissive to British authority. In 1895, Hamad attempted to take the city of Muscat in Oman in an effort to reunite Oman with Zanzibar. He had privately funded the invasion force, and he was hoping that a consolidation of power, again, relinking these two countries into one, might enable him to get out from under British control. But that effort failed. On August 25th, 1896, Hamad died, and a battle for the Sultan's throne began. Britain's agents in Zanzibar had selected Hamoud ibn Muhammad to succeed Hamad. Khalid ibn Bargash, who had made several attempts to take the throne, just saw this as his chance. There are also historians who claim that Hamad had sent for Khalid while he was on his deathbed and had asked Khalid to take the throne and regain control of Zanzibar. Regardless, in any case, Khalid did manage to occupy the palace and declared himself sultan, And then this led to a series of events that became a very short war. So when Khalid took the palace, which he did by climbing in through a window and then barring the door so British consulate staff could not enter, he surrounded it with an army of supporters. It started small, but it grew very quickly as people came to his side, and it's estimated to have ended up being between 2,800 and 3,000 men. And this force also had a royal yacht nearby. At the time as this was playing out, Arthur Henry Hardinge was Britain's consul general in Zanzibar. His deputy was a man named Basil Cave, and Basil Cave responded to the Sultan claimant's militia with one of his own. One was made of the British military and Zanzibari men who were loyal to the British throne. This totaled somewhere less than a thousand in number. Estimates veer around from a few hundred to nine hundred. But... Cave also summoned the Royal Navy, which soon had five ships in the waters off Zanzibar, and they were heavily armed. Rear Admiral Harry Rawson from the HMS St. George issued an ultimatum. Khalid could surrender by 9 a.m. on the morning of August 27, 1896, or be fired upon by British forces. Khalid did not surrender. He did offer Cave the chance to acknowledge him as sultan, which was refused in turn, Cave had already warned the European consulates that they should move their people to safety. At 7 a.m. on August 27th, one more warning was sent to Khalid, offering him and his people safety if they would just leave the palace and surrender at the customs house. And he said he would rather fight. An hour later, Khalid sent a messenger to Cave explaining that Khalid believed he was the rightful heir to the throne. And Cave told the messenger that things were past negotiation, Khalid could surrender or he could face shelling, and uh, nobody wanted to make a deal at this point. So, with reassurance that the Crown supported a military action, Cave's forces opened fire on the waterfront palace of the Sultan at 9.02 a.m. The HMS Thrush, HMS Raccoon, and HMS Sparrow all fired upon the target at the same time. The palace was set on fire. The Sultan's yacht, after firing several times on British vessels, was fired upon and sank. The exact length of time of this war has been reported slightly differently over the years. Most modern accounts say that a flag of surrender was raised and the bombardment ceased at 9.40 a.m. That would make it a 38-minute conflict. It's not 100% certain that that time is correct, though, and you are just as likely to see 45 minutes or even 50 reported. Uh, Even in the newspapers of the day, it kind of veered all over the place between 30 and 50. 
part of the confusion is because the clock tower in Zanzibar town was one of the first things that was hit by artillery. So the thing that would have determined the time for most people was not in play. But it is generally accepted that the Anglo-Zanzibar War lasted less than an hour. This is, as we referenced earlier, often touted as the shortest war in history. But that doesn't mean that it was without consequences. While the manpower on the ground initially makes it sound like Khalid had the edge, the Navy force from Britain made just a totally lopsided fight. An estimated 500 men from Khalid's forces were wounded or killed, and in sharp contrast, only one British soldier sustained any injury. And of course, the palace was completely trashed. Khalid fled, and he eventually made his way to the German consulate, and he was given asylum there as British forces were hunting for him. And once he was tracked down by British forces, Germany did not hand Khalid over to Britain. They promised that he would not ever again set foot on Zanzibar, and instead they sent him to Dar es Salaam, which was part of Germany's territory in Africa at the time, and so he went there as an exile. And he remained there until World War I, and at that point he was actually arrested by British forces. He died in Mombasa at the age of 53, 31 years after this mini-war. The afternoon of August 27th, the British choice, Hamad ibn Mohammed, was installed as Zanzibar's sultan. He was totally acquiescent to Great Britain's requests in all matters. So Zanzibar at that point was a British protectorate until 1963. Yeah, there's certainly a lot more nuance that goes on between this and when it ceased being a protectorate. But it's an interesting thing because, I, like I said at the top, you often see this listed as like this one nutty thing that happened. And it's like, no, it was centuries of buildup of like occupations and clashes and negotiations and those things that happen in the course of human history, and because they all happen on this one tiny part of land uh, on on the Indian Ocean, it's kind of fascinating that it, it did culminate in this one weird event. It is interesting, too, to look at how this history is written, depending on who's writing it. Uh, we'll probably talk about that a little bit on Friday, but hopefully that's a, a little bit more of an expanded sense of what is often kind of talked about in a jokey way, like it's a 38-minute war, which uh, sounds funny, but it was really, there was so much conflict in the mix that went to that moment and so many people trying to control one another. I have listener mail, but this is a a listener mail where I'm paraphrasing a little bit. Uh, Just because uh, this listener mentioned some personal stuff that I don't know that she would want to have shared on air, but I really liked a couple of really darling aspects of her letter. So I wanted to, one, just thank her for sending it and to talk about those. This is from our listener, Allie. She says, today I am sending, she uh, talks to us occasionally on Twitter, but she says, but today I'm sending a real letter to you as part of my participation in NACORIMO for February. It's like NaNoWriMo, which is National Novel Writing Month, but the CO is correspondence. I will be writing letters every day in February, and this is your day. I love this idea. So good. Uh, It is really good. And it's one of those things where I remember when I used to write letters and I don't anymore in the digital age, but it's often so wonderful to get a tactile physical letter. So she mentions that, you know, she has listened to the show for a long time uh, and that we are very much like friends to her and they have gotten her through some rough, rough times. And I really, really appreciate that. It is always such an honor to me when somebody tells us that, that we have helped them through anything. Um, It is a great honor and a privilege. She also mentions that her 70 
two-year-old dad is now a fan because he started listening with her. Uh, so I love it. He especially loved our Greensboro sit-in episode. Uh, and then she mentions uh, uh, trying to get a local a local group to invite us to come and visit. I mostly just wanted to um, thank Allie for writing us. Like I said, it's always a, a privilege to be part of people's lives, especially when we're something that helps them when times are troubled. And I love the idea of a correspondence month. So I'm trying yeah. to think if, if I know I cannot commit to a month. I just know who I am and what my schedule is like, but I could maybe do a week. So I got to think about it and pick a week. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much for writing to us, Allie. Uh, we really appreciate it. I also wanted to let people know that if you want to write to us via email, you can do that at History Podcast at iHeartRadio. We're also everywhere on social media as Missed in History. If you want to subscribe to the show, we want you to absolutely do that. And you can do that on the iHeartRadio app, at Apple Podcasts, or wherever it is you listen. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.